Entrepreneur MBA podcast purpose is to help existing business owners grow their companies past the $10 million in revenue per year benchmark. Here is your host, Stephen Halasnik. Welcome, everyone. My name is Stephen Halasnik. I'm co-founder of Financing Solutions. Financing Solutions, uh, for the last 12 years, provides easy-to-set-up lines of credit for small businesses. And I will be your host for today's nonprofit, I'm sorry, Entrepreneur MBA podcast. I actually do two podcasts. Sometimes I get it screwed up. So it is the Entrepreneur MBA podcast. I also host the Nonprofit MBA podcast as well. Uh, if you are interested in learning more about a business line of credit for your business, please go to fscreditline.com. Again, FS as in financing solutions, creditline.com over the last 25 years, I have built six companies in the $5 million to $25 million range, into two co- including two companies that have made the Inc. 500 fastest growing companies in the United States. I love learning from people with business experience. And today, I am excited to be speaking with Dan Mangina from, uh, uh, from his company. Um, Dan, did I pronounce your last name correctly? Magina? It's Magina. The E E after the T is very deceptive. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. It sounds like it should be softened, but it's the way it is. It's cool. Well, thanks for joining us. Dan is a successful entrepreneur, a best-selling author, and he's a podcast host of Do It With Dan and Beyond Success, a life, a business transformation coach, and an international public speaker who is known for programs and content that take clients and students to the next level thinking and living. He has been featured on CNN, CBS, Fox, The Jack uh, Canfield Show, and in Forbes and Entrepreneur Magazines. Dan, welcome to today's Entrepreneur MBA podcast. Thank you for having me, Stephen. So we're going to be talking about uh, today's topic is the DNA of money in your business and life. And uh, I'm excited about uh, today's uh, podcast. Uh, you know, it's an interesting topic to look at. I'll be, I'll be very curious, Dan, to what your, your take is on the DNA of money in your business and your life. Do you think uh, the DNA in your business and your life versus your life is different? So um, if I backtrack a little bit on this, just to give people context of what I mean when I say money DNA. So those watching the video will see I've got chocolate skin, I've got black hair, brown eyes. Uh, my son's mother is Russian, so of course she's blonde hair and, and blue-eyed and definitely not chocolate skinned. And uh, when she felt pregnant, aside from the normal consideration of gender, height, and so on and so forth of what the baby's going to be, then then comes in a whole mix of other possibilities as to what the baby's going to look like. Um, skin tone, um, hair complex, hair color, uh, eye color, all of these things basically go up for grabs. And there was at no point during the process of Olga's pregnancy that we poked her belly and said, hey, how's the eye color coming along? How's the hair color coming along? It just naturally unfolded because anyone with a, a natural, like a, a very rudimentary grasp of biology will know that at the point of inception, all of the features of that baby, even up to what he's going to look like when he's 20 years old, were already decided by the DNA makeup at that time. And I think what we often lose sight of is the law of cause and effect as to how it shows up in our life and business in so much as everything that we're experiencing right now financially in terms of the quality of our relationships, the quality of our health, the quality of our mental state is the causation, is the effect of a number of causations. And those causations for the most part are unconscious. Money DNA for me is understanding 
what I've identified as five areas which, when dialed in, allow us to be more um, predictive as to what our financial situation is going to be, both in our business and in our everyday life. Okay, good. I like that intro. Um, let's go back to the original question, too. I'm glad you did that. Um, I would describe it, but it's really where we should have started, right? Um, the Sometimes when I ask a question, the very first one, I, it's usually to jolt the the guest because, <laughs> you know, usually the guests have been on a lot of different podcasts. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think one of the values that I've often brought to the table is I ask really good questions. Um, mm-hmm. So let's go back to the, the, the question I did ask, which, I'm, again, I'm glad that you did describe what you're talking about. And then we'll get into the five areas you're, you're talking about. Um, is D, the DNA of money different? when you're talking about your business versus your personal life? I think that's going to differ from person to person. And that's, I think, one of the the things that money DNA as a concept really puts forward because it recognizes that we're all individuals. There are some people that will have a different emotional mental response to the finances in a business, to the finances in the home. There are some people that perhaps have other influences in the home finances. Let's say, for example, you have a, a, a couple or a family who are very integrated and they're very open about what they discuss at home. But either of the people in that relationship may have a different perspective in terms of how they deal with their finances in their business. So I think it comes down to the person. Uh, and I think it's important for us to recognize that although the core concept of what I'm talking about is going to be the same across the board, how we engage with it and how we respond to things that show up in our life and in our business may be very different from person to person. Yeah, it is. You know, what's interesting, I, I noticed this, uh, you know, um, when I cut my meat five or 10 years in, into my first businesses, you know, I'll drop 20 or 30 grand at, at, in my business and not even think about it. And then mm-hmm. I go home and I have a renovation, I have a renovation for 20 or $30,000. And I'm like, Oh, that's a lot of money. Right. <laughs> and, and you know, it's just, and which it's just kind of crazy, you know, and I don't mm-hmm. even think about it in the business and, mm-hmm. you know, and so, and you know, I, I even had this instance happen. My, my niece just started her first business and she, she, she tends to be very frugal <laughs> And mm-hmm. I was talking to her the other day and she said that she had bought this thing the other day that was $900. And for her, that that's a huge amount of money. And mm-hmm. she said, oh, it was for the business anyway. I was like, whether it's for the business or it's for you, it's still, you know, we're not talking it's to still, her business as an employee. So it's still, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. $900 for her was quite a bit. So, mm-hmm. um, so, so let's talk about the five different fundamental uh, I don't know if I'm sure the right word is traits. Uh, pillars. I call about? them pillars. I call them pillars. pillars okay. Is, is how I, how so I let's talk about them. the five uh, uh, pillars, uh, the DNA of money. Mm-hmm. So the first pillar that I look at is the vehicle or the method that we're using to actually engage with money. And that might be the industry that one's in, the way that one delivers goods and services into the marketplace, um, Uh, the marketing strategies that one is going to employ, the particular business structure. And I think that when, so just to put this into context, we use different personality profiles in order to map people's money DNA. So for each one of these pillars, there are different personality profiles that we'll use to actually identify and, and different questions that we'll use to inquire and really understand where someone's optimally placed. Because, you know, especially in, um, in, in, in the world right now of information and social media, 
there are so many people telling you this is the way that you're supposed to be doing business. This is the thing. Now, everyone's saying that you need to be on artificial intelligence. Last year, everyone was supposed to be on Web3 and have their own metaverse thingy-me-jiggy. There's always like a new fad that's going on. And one of the great things about understanding what medium is going to be optimal for you is you can cut out the noise. So for me, for example, when people try and pitch me different things, I can answer very quickly as to whether it's actually aligned with how I operate. So I don't really like doing a lot of detail stuff. I'm not an operational person, which we'll look at in pillar two. I'm very, you know, high level. I'm very good at functioning in terms of coming up with ideas and then organizing people to do more of the execution. So a lot of my entrepreneurial activity tends to be structured around that. When it comes down to different ways of marketing, you know, again, it, I, I look at marketing strategies that are aligned with how I best operate so that I can be in more flow. So not only do I get to cut out all of the noise, I can also be more efficient with the, the allocation of my resources because I, I can pour them into things that actually work. And it means that I can actually get more out of my time, my energy, and my resources than if I was firing stuff at the wall, hoping that something worked. Do you think that, let's, let's I often use this characteristic. I, I come from a family that was very frugal and I rebelled. Mm-hmm. I I was very, when I was very young, I said, I, I am never going to want to worry about dollars, uh, pennies, dollars, dimes. I don't, mm-hmm. I hated it. My mother would go shopping at five different places to save 10 cents on a can of peas. And mm-hmm. it would drive me crazy. So, and I rebelled against that. And I, you know, I'm more of the um, big picture, it, you know, don't worry about the little things, you know, kind of make the money and then the little stuff isn't that big a deal. No, I don't spend money like crazy on big things. You're not frivolous, but you're not frivolous. You're still No, deciding. no. But I, when it comes to, I just, I pay attention to, you know, if I'm going to buy a, uh, recently I was going to buy a car and, um, um, you know, someone, uh, a f- good friend recommended uh, this car that was $115,000 versus mm-hmm. the cars that I'm used to buying are $65,000. I'm like, I'm not spending $115,000 on a car, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so when it comes to big purchases, that's a little bit mm-hmm. different story, right? Then I'm mm-hmm. a little bit more aware. So my question to you is somebody who's very, very frugal, mm-hmm. I, I always felt that they hurt themselves mm-hmm. in if they're, you know, because they, they don't, they won't take chances. Mm. So they're less likely, let's say to start a business. Now, of course, for every rule, there's, there's an exception. Mm -hmm. So I know like Sam Walton from Walmart, he was very frugal, but Mm -hmm. he built a company that was built around being frugal. Frugal. Right. Yeah. So um, mm-hmm. do you think that someone's attitude toward money can hold them back? I think we, we, we're sliding off to another conversation that I love to have. I've actually got you know a quiz that we've actually created. It's like 10 questions. It helps people identify their number one block to calling in abundance. And this is actually one of the areas that we find people kind of slipping into. Uh, and that's losing sight of the fact that the attitude that I've got towards a thing is going to indicate my relationship to it. Because... There is someone that could, and I know people like this, they may be the frugal person that starts a business, but they spend all their time counting the pennies. Do they even get to enjoy it? And you know, as well as I do, having started as many businesses as you have over such a long entrepreneurial career, it's not easy. 
And so you put all this energy and effort into something and you don't even get to enjoy the benefits of it. And I think it's important to understand that if you're going to be frugal, ask yourself why, you know, is it fear that's driving your frugality? And if, in, in, in which case, well, what unconsciously you're allowing into your, your experience potentially by having those fears if it's just being careful, fine. I know some people that are happily frugal. It's not that they're having a negative experience. They just enjoy the process of frugality, hunting for the discounts and so on and so forth. I personally never ask for discounts. I never look for the cheapest option. I look for the option that's most convenient and the one that brings me the most joy. So, you know, going back to your car example, I wouldn't spend money on a car just because it's 115000 I wouldn't be looking at the price. I'd be looking at which one do I want more. And if it happened yeah. to be the 115000 car, I'd buy the 115000 car. But yeah. You know, the the attitude that we have towards a thing, I think ultimately to, to tie this all up, impacts our relationship to it. And if we're going through all of this effort and efforting in order to create businesses, to create value and to have this abundance available to us to enjoy, I think it's important for us to have a personal relationship to what that enjoyment means. If you enjoy the process of frugality and hunting for discounts and clipping coupons, have at it. But if it's pulling away from your actual ability to enjoy what you've created, then I would question it. Is one of the five pillars your attitude toward money or no? No. Um, the attitude towards money is going to be, is going to um, pull from those five pillars. So, so do I you, can look at. So do sorry, you have on. to understand your attitude of money before you start looking at the five pillars? I would say that your relationship to the pillars is going to give me a clue as to what your attitude is. And if you want to tweak your attitude, then a couple of the pillars will support you in tweaking your attitude to money. Yeah, I, I, I really like what you're saying too. Um, I think it's very important to understand your attitude toward money. I mean, like I, uh, like I have uh, my one sister who, you know, who, who, who's wealthy, right? And, but they're so cheap. And, and mm -hmm. um, when I ask her why she's so I'm cutting to the simplifying it. Why she's mm -hmm. so cheap? She says, "Well, because that's what I was taught, and I don't want to. Um, I don't want to get my mom or dad, who are past, angry." You mm. know, I was like, "They're gone," mm. and they, you know, yeah. so, you know. Anyway, so all right, so let's let's go into, but you know, let, just not to belabor this point, but but when you look at my son, who's 22 years old, who's really really advanced, uh, very mature. He believes that he'll never make the amount of money that I make. And so he, he, he feels that he needs to save money because mm -hmm. that's the way he's going to, you know, get to this angle of, of having a, a high, a good quality of life um, mm -hmm. when he gets older. And I, you know, mm -hmm. so he knows his why. And I think that's what we're talking mm -hmm. about. So what's the second, what were you going to say? I'm sorry. Go ahead, Dan. No, I was going to say, I mean, with that, I would always encourage anyone who, is sitting on an axiom about how an activity today is going to lead to wealth in the future should look at the data points and the data points suggest that saving is not a constructive way to move forward unless you're deploying those that save yeah well he's investing it. towards something oh, he is he's, he's, yeah you know, so he's he away, saves 30 percent of them yeah he saves he, he does you know, he's a 22 year old kid and, uh, you know he makes one hundred and forty five thousand dollars a year and he saves 30 percent of his money and that thirty percent, he has a he has his own budget, and thirty percent of that money goes into um, uh, the stock market, and he has a long term plan. By the time he's fifty, he wants to retire. So I mean, Excellent. Like, he's, yeah, he's he knows for, what he's doing then. Yeah, for a young boy, uh, you know, that's a very mature uh, 
And, I and love that. you know, yeah. Anyway, and the reason why he picked 50, because he wants to be a professional actor. <laughs> so he said okay, 50. And he, yeah, there you go. So he has, <laughs> he has, a, has an incentive. Anyway, awesome, uh, awesome. all right. So what's the second pillar? The second pillar is the role that we actually play in the day-to-day activities. Um, you know, so for me, I don't touch my diary. And this gets annoying for some people because I always have to bring my assistant in. But I mess my diary up. Anytime I try to get involved in arranging my schedule, I'll double book. I'll mess something up. I don't do it. I get an email from Amy on a Sunday. These are the days and times that you've got things. I can check it against my diary as well. Make sure everything's there. I, um, when you I've say got the diary, top level of, you, mean, you mean your I calendar? Schedule. Yeah, schedule. my calendar. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Forgot yeah. to Americanize it. But yeah. um, with the operations of the business, the day-to-day operations, I don't do any of the day-to-day operations in any of my entrepreneurial activities. Why? Because I'm not an operational person. That's not where my skills are. My skills are coming up with the ideas to some level, a high level of networking and relationship building and, and, and coming up with the future plans. I'm more of a visioner than I'm an executor. And then you get people who are, whether it's from being frugal or, or because they fear that they don't have any other way to do it, they're trying to wear all of the hats in their business or in their life. And actually they're doing themselves and their business and the people they serve a disservice because they don't have the skills to run all of them, wear all of those hats. And so it's understanding which hat must I wear which hats do I wear best and which hats should I not be wearing and whether we use partnership, whether we use contracting, whether we use um, uh, interns if we don't have the money to do or find some other way to put those hats on the heads of people that actually know what they're doing. Yeah. I mean, as long as I've been in business too, you know, you fall, you sometimes fall into the old, old thinking that you, you know, I'm struggling with a little bit with that right now with, I've always been pretty good at delegating, but mm-hmm. I'm kind of falling back where I'm like, Oh, I had the time. I'll just do it myself, you know, mm-hmm. instead of, you know, finding something else to do with my time. So mm-hmm. that's smart. It's hard to be disciplined. I think sometimes though, you know, sometimes I mm-hmm. always fi- I find, and I don't know if you feel this way. Sometimes I find, Oh, by the time I teach this, <laughs> I'll just do it myself. <laughs> and um, I'm normally not that way, but I, mm-hmm. I have a lot more time now, so I kind of mm-hmm. can do that. Um, End up doing it. Have you always uh, been it depends. I mean, so, you know, the first book I ever wrote was From Time to Time, and it was actually a, a, a book that talks about outsourcing and strategies for you to work out what you should be outsourcing and how you can afford outsourcing and, and make it more practical. But, yeah, for, you know, for complicated tasks, there may be an onboarding period where you have to teach someone. But I always ask people, What's the opportunity cost of you continuing to do it yourself versus going through the pain of the short term teaching someone and then not having to do it? So what we're very, very actively do in all of the areas of all the businesses I do is make sure we set up SOPs, standard operating procedures. So when I am teaching someone, we're recording it and we're documenting it to make sure that it's easier then to create step-by-step things that we can pass off to somebody else to continue going forward. And yeah, it is painful at first to do that. But I look at the longer term benefit of having that freedom. And in terms of what you were saying about, you know, not knowing what to do with one's time, I think it is important to have some intentionality of what that time is going to be for. And I think that comes down to being a bit more purposeful. I don't like people getting obsessed with purpose. Oh, my God, what did God put me here to do? What did the universe want from me? Because a lot of people get stuck not doing anything, waiting for that big bang to happen. But I certainly know that for me, the next three to five years, I want to be a full-time philanthropist. And so when I have extra time, my son is only two. I'll maybe spend time with my son, although I'm away from him at the moment. Um, I've got hobbies. You know, I've been working on improving my chess game. I, you know, I was working out at the gym today. 
um, you know, get my guitar game up. I practice languages. I do some reading. So I fill the time with productive things that are improving me as a person so that I don't have the thing of, oh, I've got this free time. I've got time that I can use productively. Is it more productive for me to be sabotaging myself for the future, keeping me locked in, needing to do this task going forward, or, you know, creating space so that I can do some of these other things instead? Good. So let's go to pillar number three. But before we go to pillar number three, what's what's the sentence or one word, of what pillar number one was? Uh, vehicle. It's the vehicle. V- vehicle. Number two, yeah. two pillar was what? The role. L- the role. Um, okay. R-O-L-E, the role that we play. Role. Now, what's the third yeah. pillar? Internal communication. And what this really comes down to is understanding that you know, we may have these grand ideas about wanting to change our attitude to money, wanting to change our, our attitude towards needing to hold on to things and to control, needing to change our attitudes towards being caught up with, you know, whatever the new fad is and be a bit more focused and disciplined. But one of the things that I've found is so many people are trying to generate these new thinking patterns, but they're not actually speaking in the language that their mind understands. As I mentioned before, we use personality profiles in order to map out um these, these pillars. And the one that we use for pillar three is Gary Chapman's model of the love languages, the five love languages. So when I start talking about five, like the five love languages, people often get a bit confused. They're like, Dan, I'm not trying to improve my, my marriage here. <laughs> you know, I'm trying to sort out my business and get my business to the next level. And, and then I, I break down where that came from. So for those who are not familiar with Gary Chapman's model, he basically has identified that we as humans generally will primarily communicate the language of love or the message of love to a loved one and receive it via one of five modes. Acts of service, as in when someone does something for us, we feel the love. Gifts, when someone think thoughtfully gives us a gift, we feel the love. Physical touch, when someone gives us a hug or they give us a kiss, we feel the love. Words of affirmation, when they tell us that they love us, we feel the love. And quality time, when they spend time with us, that's when we feel loving energy. Now, the part that made this very interesting for me, Stephen, was at no point during a communication with someone of this love where there's a disconnect, do you sit and say, my love language is words of affirmation. That person actually just tried to give me a kiss and didn't actually tell me how they felt about me. I refuse to feel love in this situation. I do not feel love. We don't have that consciously. At the unconscious level, we have the input of something from someone. We process it and either connect it with the output of feeling love or we don't. And so what we see here is that the love language gives us an inroad to understanding how can we communicate a message to our unconscious mind that will actually generate the output that we want. Why is this important? Because as much as 97% of the time, many of us are operating at the unconscious level. The unconscious mind operates at 10,000 to 10 million times the speed of the conscious mind. No matter what we're trying to do consciously, as in we're actively aware and mentally aware, what's going on there in the unconscious is going to rule the day. So if we do have a new behavior, a new idea, a new thought pattern, a new way of doing things that we need to communicate to ourselves, we can actually use the love language as a, a way of understanding how best to drop that new message, that new behavior, that new idea into the unconscious mind to get the idea, uh, to get the output that we want. I don't want to, I want to ask this question now and not wait to the end because I might forget the question because <laughs> I think it's a good question. And that is, <laughs> at what point in your life do you think it is the best time to really understand these five pillars and your attitude toward money? I think as early as possible. I mean, uh, my stepdaughter's seven coming on eight and even with her, you know, I, I, just, I seek to encourage her to have an expansive, abundant approach to money, not frivolous, not thinking that money falls out of the sky, 
but having a conscious relationship to it that has almost an expectation that things are going to work out, but then a dedication to doing the things to make it work out. I do that through example, through conversation, through spending time with her, so on and so forth. I do the same thing with my nephews and nieces because I want them to have that foundation because you know, the people that end up getting into mounts and mounts of consumer debt is because they don't have a conscious relationship to it, right? Uh, the people that end up maybe having resources and not enjoying them and having a depressing, unfulfilled life are the people that haven't actually tapped into it. So I think as soon as possible, um, and if you, you know, someone's older in life or whatever, today, right? Let's say yesterday is the, 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 the best time and the, the second best time is now in order to start understanding this and moving forward because there are benefits to having... Uh, a conscious relationship, an expansive relationship to the thing that actually makes life the easiest. Money is the easiest medium of exchange. It's the easiest way to get more choice, the easiest way to, to get more of the things that we want, even if that's that you want to give more money to other people. You know, charities spend their time trying to get money from people who have made their money. So what if charities were making money themselves or the people that were in charities had resources? And so I think it's important to look at the best time yesterday and the second best time right now. Yeah, I was just I was just thinking back, like so. I have a 22 year old and a 14 year old, both both boys, and so I'm. I was thinking while you're uh, going over what you're talking about, about you know where did Michael, that's my oldest, get his idea about putting money aside, and um, you know, and I think it was it was definitely conversations that we've had he and I, where. I, I don't like telling my kids what they, they have to do. I don't like mm -hmm. that. I like, and I, I never did that with anybody who was working for me either. So I think what happened was we would just have intellectual discussions about, you know, money, life, you know, business and, mm -hmm. and, you know, Michael kind of, I, I, I would give him, the various different options that somebody can look at their money or their life or their, you know, their, their career. And then he chose what fit what he wanted. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I, like I'll be specific. Like I said to him, listen, my first eight and a half years, I worked for Xerox and uh, you know, and I, I loved working for Xerox. I did really well. And, um, and, you know, I said to him, if I, if I had stayed at, in corporate America, I, I probably would have done very, very well. I mean, financially, you know, and, and I said, but I would have had to have had a different attitude, which was, I would have need to have put money away or had passive income somewhere. Mm -hmm. And, um, and he, and I said, probably I would have gotten stock options and all this other stuff. Mm -hmm. And, I think he looked at the directions that he could do. Could he go into his own business and what were the advantages mm -hmm. and disadvantages of that? Or could he, you know, stay in corporate America and what are the advantages and disadvantages of that? And he made, mm -hmm. you know, he kind of made this decision that he wanted to, which I talked to him about money gives you control and options for your future. Mm -hmm. Right. And I said, mm -hmm. the people who went into trouble are the ones that live paycheck to paycheck. Then you have no yeah. options. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So anyway, like wage slavery. In, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. In, intellectually, we would have these conversations and then he came up with his own strategy. Right. Mm -hmm. So I agree with what you're saying, Dan, about having these conversations about money with you, with your, with your kids uh, early on. Um, and I'm not going to, I don't think it's a good idea to tell them the way that they should have to do things. Yeah. 
I think but to give them personalities give them the just, options for how yeah, to think because they might it, rebel right, to expand them. Yeah, yeah, they might. There's like mm-hmm. I did. I mean, my mom mm-hmm. said, "Oh, you're spending too much money on this." I'm mean, like, "Dad, I'd be like, mm-hmm. I'm going to rebel the other way." Anyway, I, mean, I, I, I dialogue for me. It's about dialoguing, and so you know, with Ariana, she's older now. Um, so it's like we have discussions about things. So if she wants something, it's like, okay, you know, well, do you know how much that is? You know, do you know how many, like, just have her thinking about it just to open up her mind and, and have her analyzing and being a bit more curious about what's going on, but doing it in a way that's leaning towards abundance rather than, Hey, do you know how much money that is? Oh, you can't spend that much money. It's like, Oh, do you really want it? Do you know where money comes from? Do you want money? Is this is money? Do you know how much this is? So, you know, if we go to the store, for example, I would give her the physical note, you know, we're out down in Mexico. Okay. You go and have a look. And this is your, your, your budget. Go and, and have a look at what you want and start having. So it's just developing this curious, almost playful gamified approach to it. And then yes, giving those, um, those options for her to decide for herself. And I think with your son, I think it's a testament to the fact that you actually, it, I mean, deferred gratification is one of the greatest skills for success in life as a whole. Right. And the fact that he's made this choice at such a young age to defer gratification for the fullness of his salary, which is probably going to go up depending on, you know, what career he's, he's, he's gone in. And he's saying, I've made this commitment and he's actively made the, you know, made the steps towards that commitment for, you know, 28 years. It's a long time in the future. I'm going to defer my gratification for the next 28 years and pop this aside. It's a very, very powerful life skill. And I think if nothing else, even if everything went to pants with the stock market, the fact that he has that skill, that's very, very transferable and it will always set him ahead. Uh, so I just wanted to yeah, well, I always, basically I, listen, for that. Uh, but I always try to help my kids or prepare them. I think I believe that's my job, right? Is preparing mm-hmm. my kids for what's coming down. Like, you know, not, not to belabor the point. I, I, like an example would be is I've talked with him uh, quite recently a lot about he's only been in this job for a year. Right? And what, what happens with layoffs, mm-hmm. right? So, because mm-hmm. in corporate America, that's what happens. happens. You get you get yeah. laid off, you know. Yeah. So we talk about those conversations. So so introducing you know these ideas and concepts with my kids has I've always done that from a very young age. Um, so anyway, let's go to the fourth pillar. Yeah, let's go to the fourth pillar. So the fourth pillar, quite quickly, is decisions. And I think we we lose sight of the fact that a lot of the times the decisions that we're making that we're not conscious of are running through the unconscious programs that have led us to the results we've been getting now. So if we want to make different choices, we need to make those choices in a different way. And what we do with this one is we use particular personality profiles to understand how people can make choices that they can be conscious of that aren't running purely on program, but they can be more connected to. Uh, And there are different ways, depending on on a couple of profiles that we can show you how to make choices that aren't held back by limiting beliefs, by limiting ideas and limiting behaviors. Yeah. I mean, how do you, uh, do you feel like in business, that rule even applies even more because you're making an investment in the business. So mm-hmm. you want to make sure that you say, Hey, if I'm going to, you know, I see it all the time in people, I'm, I'm my skill set is um, marketing. So that's where I'm mm-hmm. really good at. Um, I am always um, uh, an advocate of saying to people, you have to um, measure everything. You can't just say, oh, I'm going to spend $10,000 on Google advertising and then see what happens. And then you, you, I like you, you got to measure everything. 
you got to, how many of them convert to clients? And, you know, it's not an mm-hmm. easy thing to really kind of figure out, believe me. So are you, uh, so is the fourth pillar, um, very, very applicable to, uh, business and personal life? Yeah, it's how we make all choices and decisions because all of our choices and decisions, if left unconscious, will be unconsciously driven. And therefore, again, you know, cause and effect. Right now, we're experiencing the effect of the causation of choices that we've made before. Everything that's in our life now, we can tie back to a choice to do something or not to do something, to be somewhere, to not be somewhere. If we continue to make choices unconsciously, we're going to be making the same choices and end up in the same place. There's not going to be any change. Your financial situation, your relationship situation, your health situation, your family situation, it will remain the same. So we have to change how those decisions are being made, reframe that so that it's not being led by unconscious programs, and then move forward positively to the new direction we want to move into. Yeah, and and I say this too, that it's really important for you to have uh, KPIs, key performance indicators, and that you mm-hmm. that you review those every single month. And you know, for a business, it's how much revenue did did we make or sales? Uh, what what was our gross profit? What was our net profit? What was um what was what did we spend on marketing versus our sales? <clears throat> you know, I'm just going over the things that I look at all the time. What was mm-hmm. I, I do this? What was the top ten percent of expenses that we had? Um, mm-hmm. You know, th- these are all things that I look at and, and that I, you know, pay attention to. And there's other ones, turns on receivables in my mm-hmm. personal life, you know, uh, looking at our biggest expenses, you know, uh, our, our balances at the end of the month, you know, where do we, you know, all these other areas, uh, you know, so I think I'm a big believer and, and you know, talk about pillar number four is, is, you know, about also starting off with awareness of, you know, you, you don't. You got to understand where the cash flow is going, whether it's personal mm-hmm. or business, right? Definitely. And I think that in itself, if you're, I'm not a good person with budgets. So, mm-hmm. but I am, if I'm made aware of things, then I, I think I, I subconsciously have a budget in my head. So, with you. Um, uh, you agree? But this with goes that? back to the role, though, Stephen, right? Your, your role isn't to be the detailed number point to point budget person. Yep. We have a bookkeeper and we've got a, an internal financial officer that does that, make sure that the bills are paid on time and so on and so forth. I just get a list of them to sign off and confirm that, you know, these are the payments to be made and that's it. I don't have to deal with all of the, all the rigmarole because if it did, we get into trouble. Well, <laughs> I think it's, be paid I, off I, yeah, I also think it's a mistake. I think <laughs> it, going back to my original discussion earlier, if someone's, you know, <clears throat> very frugal, I think you, Listen, I think it depends on the business. Like I said, the example mm-hmm. of Sam Walton, right? So I think it depends on the business. There's there's some businesses that are very much geared toward frugality, right? Mm-hmm. And then there's other businesses like anything that's in the, certainly in the financing, financial, not financing, financial industry, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you, you don't have people who are incredibly frugal running huge mutual fund companies, right? They just, just you don't see it. They're thinking, you know, we're big, right? Anyway, Mm -hmm. so what's the fifth pillar? Fifth pillar is all about action because at the end of the day, you know, we can have all the theory in the world. If we're not actually taking the actions, then we're not going to, we're not going to get anywhere. And for that one, we use Gretchen Rubin's model of the four tendencies. Gretchen Rubin's an awesome uh, researcher. She's based out of New York. She did a, a great book called The Happiness Factor. And I heard her on the Tony Robbins podcast years ago, followed her work and really, really loved this model because what it does is it looks at putting us into four groups 
depending on how we deal with expectation internally and externally. What that literally means is, how do I respond to what I say I'm going to do? And how do I respond to what other people are expecting me to do? So the four groups are rebels. They resist internal and external expectation. So if they want to do something themselves, they're going to procrastinate and self-sabotage. If someone wants them to do it, they're going to rebel against it. You've got questioners. Questioners will rebel against both unless they really understand and agree with the why. If they agree with the why, then they'll do it. And if they don't, they'll resist. Then you have uh, obligers, which can only respond to external. If they have to do it in and of themselves, they won't do it. If they don't have an external accountability, it won't happen. Then you've got upholders that respond positively to internal and external. And so one of the really funny things is, There are a lot of people, for example, that are following this edict of saying that they should have an accountability partner. They should have a coach telling them what to do. They should have someone looking over their shoulder. And actually that's going to create more resistance. It's not going to be positive for them. I'm one of those people. I need to structure that support very, very specifically to me. Then you've got people like upholders where you would think it's great that they always do what they say they're going to do, but no, because they end up burning out or taking on too much or doing things that don't matter because they say, you know, they, they, they follow through with everything that they're, they're going to do. So they need to be a lot more discerning. And there are some people for whom success is just an accountability partner away. And so if they would just take on some accountability, maybe being in a community, having an accountability partner that doesn't have to be paid, it can be someone that holds you accountable in any way, shape or form, they will get to the end goal. But if you don't know that, you're not going to be able to take the action. You're always going to find yourself stuck. Great. That's good. So let's restate, Dan, please, for me, the five pillars that we should be paying yes. attention to. Number one is the vehicle, how we are actually doing the thing. Number two is the role, what we're doing actively with our time and energy in the doing of the thing. Three is internal communication. How are we speaking to ourselves and to others in order to ensure that we're actually taking the actions internally to do what we want, where we get to where we want to get to. Number four is how do we make new choices so we can get to new outcomes and do those without being limited? And number five, how can we be supported to actually take the action that's going to get us to where we want to go? You know, what came to my mind is I think you could take those five steps and say, what's the DNA of my life? Mm -hmm. And then also say, you can also say, what's the DNA of my business as well? You can. And, yeah, and we kind of break it down that way. Now, the thing that's interesting with money is it, 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 um, it crosses the barriers of all those things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, listen, I'm 58 years old and I know that the, the, the newer generation, they, they, they like integrating um, life. They believe in integration of life and, and business. Whereas, you know, when I was younger, it was, um, they were separate. Business was your business life was your business life, your personal life was your personal life, and there wasn't really an intertwining. And um, and you know that's changed a lot over the years. I, I don't know. Mm. I don't. I don't know. I don't think it's honestly. I don't think it's for the better. Um, mm. You know, I think that there's more burnout now um, because mm. of that. Um, but so, but I think you could take those five pillars and really think through. Um, how they would apply to your life and what, and, and also the business. What do you think about that idea? Yeah. So the thing for me, Stephen, is that, you know, I didn't start off the work that I do in the world from the personal development perspective with money. I actually just wanted people to create a life that they wanted to live. But what I was finding time and time again, and then when I first started doing this work five or six years ago, was money was the number one excuse people had for why they weren't living the life that they wanted to mm. live. So tracking it through money, this is just something that's measurable. 
when someone comes to me and they want to get their business up to the next level, they want to get their finances to the next level, they want to be financially free, and we use the money DNA to get there, now we've got a measurable way to track how we're making choices, which will impact our health and our relationship, how we're taking actions, which is going to impact, you know, our finances and our health, you know, internal communication. It's going to, you know, have a a say in how we feel internally and how we're moving through life, the roles and, and, and and the vehicle, how I'm allocating my energy. Am I doing it productively? So it then becomes something that crosses over into every area. We just use money as a way that we can start to keep score, see the result, and then have a positive relationship to it and then start to expand it into other areas. Yeah. What's interesting is I've mentioned on my podcast before, like I belong to a group of guys, nine guys who all own their their own businesses. We've been together for 25 years. And when we first started together as a group, we went around a room and said, why did we start our businesses? Um, The number one reason across the board was control. It Mm. wasn't money. It, you know, mm. uh, it was, I want to be able to work on what I want to work on and I don't want to be told what to do. Mm-hmm. So you would think that people starting their own businesses are, are, are saying, oh, I just want to make as much money as I possibly can. Now, granted, mm-hmm. that was second. Okay. Mm-hmm. But, of you know, and you certainly could say the control factor that they, that we all said money was the vehicle for that control. Right. But I, you know, I think it is a revelation, the idea that, that when people start their businesses, they, or they, you know, they, they have a business because they want control over their life. They want control over the decisions they make. They want control over their time. I guess they want control over their money. You know, it's all Mm -hmm. about this because there's nothing worse than working for a corporation where almost everything is out of your control. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, it's scary. And yeah, uh, I, I, I definitely, people always say, well, it must be, it's just so risky for you to go in business. I think I say to them, it's to me, it's more risky to work for somebody else. Yeah. <laughs> so agreed. I love it. Um, are there last question? Are there times when those five pillar rules just really break down? Like, like when you have someone who's super, super wealthy, a billionaire, Mm-hmm. You think those five pillar rules break down? Um, I don't see why they wouldn't. And I would I would actually hazard a guess that someone who has got to the point where they've made billions probably is in a vehicle that's aligned with them. They are if they're happy, they're probably doing the role that's most aligned for them, but not all of them are. If they've got the internal communication locked down, they probably have healthy relationship with themselves and with the people around them. If they're making decisions, they probably have a more peace of mind on the day-to-day basis. And then if they're taking action, I think the action probably is. I mean, for example, I get to spend time once a year on Sir Richard Branson's island. For those who don't know who that is, he started the, the Virgin brand of companies. And it's, it was fascinating. I mean, I, I know a few wealthy people. But he's probably the richest person that I have any kind of relationship with that I get to spend personal quality time with. And he spends half his day having fun. Very clear on what he wants to do with his life. Um, very, very purposeful with how he he contributes to the world and, and to the businesses that he creates. And he, for me, is an example of someone who is very much in flow. He has great relationships with his family, with his kids. His grandkids adore him. His staff all love him. He's just a very, very awesome person. Is everybody that way? No, I know some very rich people that aren't very happy. They're quite miserable, in fact. So I would say that they're not in alignment with it. So I'd say these principles 
I think do have a place to at least be explored for all of us. And I think that many of us are where we are, like, you know, which is the whole point of this, because we're already in alignment with these pillars. But there's definitely something to be said for diving in and making sure that we're conscious of where the alignment exists and where it doesn't exist. Yeah, you know what I wrote down? I like what you said. <laughs> I said, how can you have more fun? You know, um, so, I mean, I'm in a major, um, I'm not, I don't want to get into the details, but a life changing, um, situation right now. So, um, so I'm really questioning a lot of things and that was, you know, I think you can use those five pillars that we talked about to really quantify that money is about how can you have more fun? You know, mm-hmm. even if it's through delayed gratification, like you said. Mm-hmm. So, um, really good discussion. I, I thought it was going to be very interesting, and certainly was. Um, Enjoyed it. That's kind of all the time we have for today. But I'd like to thank so very much, Dan, for coming on to today's podcast. And if you like today's podcast, please feel free to share it with a friend, and also subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. And also, please, if you like today's podcast or any other ones, please give us a five star review. And if you're looking for a line of credit for your business, you can call us at 862-207-4118 or visit our website at fscreditline.com. Again, at FS as in financing solutions, creditline.com. Dan, if anyone wants to get in touch with you, how would they go about doing that? Easiest way to do that is to head to my website, dreamwithdan.com, dreamwithdan.com. Great. Thanks for coming on. Thank you again for having me, Stephen. Really appreciate it. Yeah, I think the thing that um, on the summary of today that I would uh, take away and, you know, listen, I know it's hard. I know we're all running around with our heads cut off, but, you know, having an intentional life, um, having an intentional business, I think it ends up in that more uh, happiness overall. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not saying you have to be so structured that everything you do is intentional, but I think if if you take a step back and you think more about what you want out of your life, out of your business, how money plays an effect on those decisions, I think you're going to be happier. I know um, mm-hmm. I've done a nice job with being intentional. And um, it's, you know, I, I really notice that I'm uh, a lot different than a lot of my friends in that I think things through and I, I really think what's going to make me happy. So uh, something for everybody to consider, to think about, take some time back, listen to what Dan's saying, maybe look at those five pillars and see how you can apply to your life. Everybody have a great day.